The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, July 8th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Joe Biden has apologized. Did it work? I would say so. And I base that opinion on how his apology was framed. Here's Margaret Brennan on CBS's Face the Nation. Biden apologized yesterday for his remark on past work with segregationists. Here's Chuck Todd on Meet the Press. Joe Biden concedes he was wrong to seem to praise segregationist senators. I regret it. And here are the words Joe Biden literally said. Folks, now was I wrong a few weeks ago to somehow give the impression to people that I was praising those men who I successfully opposed time and again? Yes, I was. I regret it. And I'm sorry for any of the pain or misconception they may have caused anybody. So that was actually an if you were offended and if you came away with the wrong opinion apology. But I think it's fine. You want to know why? Because he does believe that it was right to work with segregationists to get things done. And most Democratic voters believe that it was right to work with segregationists to get things done. And third, it was right to work with segregationists to get things done. The appeal of getting nothing done to win, or not really win, but erase a debate point that comes 40 years in the future, it's a little bit harder case to make than, let's just work with the loathsome men, we'll get some things done. Among progressives, I would like you to note, the problem wasn't that the senators with whom Biden disagreed were segregationists. It was more that the senators with whom he disagreed, he worked with to get things done. Here's my proof. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Biden made the statement about Mitch McConnell having an epiphany and wanting to work with him if Biden gets elected. And that was attacked, as was Biden's weird baseless claim that he would cure cancer if he was elected, as was his grandpa-y statements advising young girls not to let anyone date them before they're 30. Turns out progressives do not like Joe Biden. I do have to say about the apology, though, there's one thing I don't understand. If I don't understand, I think I do understand it, but I understand it to be a cynical gesture, a necessarily cynical gesture. And that's when he said, I apologize for any pain I've caused. To me, that's a thing that you're supposed to say when you're placating as opposed to a thing that you really feel. Because who would be experiencing pain, pain of Joe Biden saying, I worked with James Eastland to get legislation passed. There are a lot of people who will not be voting for Biden under any circumstances. And when they heard that, they were the ones who objected most loudly and they weren't pained. They were probably heartened by the strategic opportunity. There might be some people out there who said, oh my God, he said a nice thing about a segregationist. I thought he was against segregation, but he is. There might be further people who understood it to mean he said a nice thing about segregationists. And while he is against segregation, I really counted him among those who would always stand athwart segregationism and never say anything nice about a segregationist. But the deal is Joe Biden's been saying this for years. He praised Strom Thurmond and Jesse Helms and the two senators he mentioned a few weeks ago. So tell me who is pained by this. The people who were supposedly pained by this were 
pretty ignorant about Biden's beliefs and actions and history. It's sort of like being pained to learn that when Barack Obama came into office, he opposed gay marriage and supported the death penalty, even in some cases where a murder wasn't committed. We feel what we feel, and I'm not going to say that out of uh, 330 million Americans, 7 or 12 didn't actually feel pain, but those wounded feelings are based more on the supposed victimized onlookers' lack of knowing the information that was amply documented, more than any actual real pain. I think what I'm saying is that pain and acknowledging the wrong is all about giving an impression. It is, to quote Joe Biden, mostly malarkey. It's part of the presidential pas de deux and not much else. It is, in the words of the political class, words that are more offensive to me than anything Joe Biden uttered. It is something to stem the bleeding, to stem the tide, to wrestle back the narrative because Biden clearly he needed to neutralize this to quote meet the press's Pete Alexander. And Biden was judged to have done so, to neutralize this, even though on the issue of busing, which was much more substantive than vaguely saying I work with segregationists, on the issue of busing, he didn't really say much different from what he'd been saying for 50 years. He said this. Statements and votes I made on busing in the 1970s have become an issue in this race. I know those speaking to the issue today are saying what I said back then. But the better answer is to get to the root cause of segregation. And he didn't even play the pain I may have caused, did he, when he said this? I don't believe a child should have to get on a bus to attend a good school. There should be first-rate schools of quality in every neighborhood in this nation. That's not even an if I was wrong. That's just reiterating what he's always been saying and, I don't know, maybe what America still believes about forced two-way busing. Forced two-way busing is not the issue in 2019 that it was in 1979, which raises the question, why is it an issue at all in the 2020 election? And the answer is just because Biden has a bad answer and because Kamala Harris asked a really good question. Of course, Harris's busing stance today isn't any different from Biden's busing stance. So it all comes down to the question, how does any of this help or inform a voter? How does this inform a voter who has a decision to make about 2020? Is the point that don't vote for Joe Biden, the guy might be a racist? Is the point don't vote for Joe Biden, you might think he's progressive enough on race, but he's not? Is the point anything about, watch out, he's got some legislative priorities that you as a voter won't like? I don't think so. I mean, you can criticize the guy for being a little bit vague about his policy positions, but I haven't seen any evidence that he's in favor of legislation that most Democrats aren't. If anything, the criticism is that Joe Biden will work with the bad people to enact legislation that most Democrats favor, and maybe some of his opponents won't, or they probably will, or at least they are posturing that they won't, or in real life, let's face it, none of them will ever get the chance to because Epiphany Mitch is only a character in centrist fanfic. The one purpose and one result of the attack was rhetorical, and it absolutely did show that Biden lacks the quick twitch comeback skills to formulate a proper spoken response in the moment. It took many, many days to come up with this. And, and the start point wasn't just the debate because he had to have known the criticism was coming. All speaks poorly, not of Biden on the issue of race or on the issue of accountability or even on the issue of stubbornness. It speaks poorly of Biden as a communicator. 
and of the Biden 2020 political organization is highly functional. And you may say that's a shame because communicating and political organizing are but incidental to the presidency, but you would be wrong. It's not nothing. It's quite something. And it will make Democrats hesitate to push him forward as their standard bearer. On the show today, the Swalwell swell that never happened. A decidedly untumescent candidacy remembered in song. But first, Anthony Ray Hinton spent 30 years on Alabama's death row. Then he was freed. It was a pretty clear case of prosecutorial malpractice, although never officially acknowledged as such. It did save Hinton from the electric chair. A memoir he wrote with his defense lawyer made him famous. Well, once Oprah Winfrey read it and made it an official book club selection. Anthony Ray Hinton is here to talk about The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life and Freedom on Death Row. In 1985, Anthony Ray Hinton was mowing his lawn. Two Alabama policemen rolled up on him, put him in handcuffs. What was I being arrested for? He asked. They wouldn't tell him. Finally, the answer came. Murder, kidnapping, etc. Anthony Ray Hinton provided an alibi. The alibi was correct. The arresting officers did not care. He was still charged with murder. The case went to trial. He was convicted. He was put on death row for 30 years. Eventually... After all those decades, the ballistics evidence that would have exonerated him originally was allowed to be introduced. It was heard by the Supreme Court. Anthony Ray Hinton was released from jail on Good Friday of 2015. He is now out with the paperback version of his New York Times bestseller, The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life, Freedom, and Justice. Anthony Ray Hinton, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Wow. To condense what you went through in those few sentences, I mean, it's more than just time. It's an unbelievable journey where actually you don't move much except in your mind. So my first question is, when did it begin to dawn on you that not only were you going to be unfairly treated by the criminal justice system, but that it really looked like there was going to be no way out? It really began on the way... Uh, to the police station. Uh, the detective, in no uncertainty, made it clear that they really didn't care whether I did it or not. They just needed someone to uh, be convicted for it so they can clean up the books. And I thought really and truthfully that once I got to the police station, uh, we would sit down and they would tell me what it was all about and talk, and I could explain to them where I was, if I could remember. And they would check into it and say, okay, we made a mistake. Mr. Hinton, you're free to go. But it didn't happen that way. Uh, the moment they pulled up on in my mother's yard, they came uh, with handcuffs and guns, and they came and got the man that they just decided that they was going to convict and put him on death row, regardless of what I said or what I did and why I tried to talk to her. Uh, they didn't care. And so at that point, I knew that I was in uh, deep trouble. Yeah, and you grew up in Alabama your whole life. You were 29. You must have known that not only was there plenty of racism, but that plenty of innocent people went to jail. Why did you believe for so long that it wouldn't happen to you? Well, to be honest with you, my mother always taught me to tell the truth, and and I hadn't had any problem with the uh, police department or the justice system in Alabama. Things that I did do, I was guilty of. I didn't try to uh, duck and dodge it. I pled guilty to writing a bad check, uh, Still in the car, but nothing disappeared. 
And I, I, I truly believe that the police uh, main job was to find the real perpetrator uh, regardless of what the crime was. And I didn't think any different. When I learned and found out that they wanted someone for murder, I'm saying you got the wrong guy, but they didn't care. And so that's is when I really began to understand that it wasn't about so much finding the right person. They just wanted to clear the books and they could clear it with me. So when you go to prison, you don't talk for three years, your first three years in prison. Yes, is that right? Absolutely. Was that a conscious choice or did it just overcome you? I, I think it was a little of both. Uh, to be honest with you, all of my life, my mom had brought me up to believe in, in law and order. My mother had believed and taught me that the police was your friend. And when I got convicted, I was mad with God more than anybody. When I got to death row and they put me in this five-by-seven cell, I sit on this bunk that was already too small for me, but I did say one thing, God don't live in my heart anymore. And for the next three years, I didn't say a word to anyone. Every time one of the God would ask me anything, I would just get a pen or a pencil and just write out my reply. I didn't talk to my mom. I didn't talk to my my friend Lester. Uh, When they would come see me, I would just shake my head at And my mom would ask me all the time, you're not feeling well? And I just said, "Mm mm-mm. It closed my eyes. What made you finally speak? Approximately about one in the morning. I woke up to the sound of a grown man crying, a man that I had lived by for three years and never asked him his name or where he was from. But my mom truly had taught me compassion. She would tell me every day it looked like no matter what one does in life, they still deserve some compassion. They still need to know that somebody care about them, love them. And that compassion came out when I heard this man that I never spoke to cry. And I hollered out through the bars, hey, mister, there's something wrong. Do you need me to get the uh, the guards? And took this man a, a few minutes to reply, and he finally said no. He said, I just got worried my mother passed. And I told him I was sorry to hear that, and I sit back down, got off the bars, sit back down, and I realized at that moment that my mother was still alive. I was alive, and I had something to be thankful for. And from that moment on, I decided at that moment that I was going to take my life back. I was going to live the best life that I could live until, I guess, they execute me. Now that you are an advocate for the falsely accused, do you look back on any of the people you are on death row with and try to question, oh, did they really des- did they really commit the crime? Oh, maybe they didn't commit the crime. Is that a mental process that you're engaged with now, given what you do? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, I could honestly say, without a doubt, I believe that there was five people that was honestly innocent at the time that I left. Of those five, what happened to them? I would honestly say that at least four of them have already been executed. I I wanted to ask you, is one of those people on death row who was executed, who you believe was innocent, was Donis Musgrove one of them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, the reason that I asked about him specifically 
is that the prosecutor in your case, Bob McGregor, yes. and the judge in your case was the same as Donis Musgrove had in his case. And I went, and, and the prosecutor in your case, McGregor, who has since died, wrote a book called Whiskey Bent and Hellbound, No Holiday for Justice. And in it, I'll just let my listeners listen as he describes you. I don't know if this will make you uncomfortable, but just to give an idea of uh, how this prosecutor conducted himself, the chapter on you is called Evil Personified Anthony Ray Hinton. And he talks about you as being Anthony Ray Hinton, a.k.a. the cooler killer, C-O-O-L-E-R, because of the, vic- the actual victims of that murder you didn't commit were in a freezer. They, they walked into a freezer. And he said, speaking of rat bastards, one of the coldest executioners that I ever confronted in all my years as a prosecutor was Anthony Ray Hinton. Now, Musgrove's family also says that he was uh, unfairly and incorrectly convicted, but now he's dead and he's gone. So, you know, what happens? At, what, can, what can we do after the fact? Is there any way to ever go back and see if that was a just conviction? Oh, uh, no. Well, see, what Bob McGregor don't tell in his book, Bob McGregor was known to have this stare at people when they was on the witness stand. And Bob McGregor met his match when he met me. I looked at Bob McGregor and I made Bob McGregor drop his head because we were staring at each other. And Bob McGregor took a profound dislike toward me. But Bob McGregor, what he don't tell how racist he was. Bob McGregor was, to me, one of the most racist prosecutors. And I don't know how he was able to get to where he got. But even when I was convicted, I didn't hear him say it, but I was told that Bob McGregor said, we didn't get the right nigger today, but at least we got a nigger off the street. So that's Bob McGregor need to be exposed for who he was and what he was. And people ask me every day, where is the person that prosecuted you? And I said it with no disrespect. I said, Bob McGregor is dead, and I truly believe he in hell. Yeah. And there are portions, I almost, after I read your book and have heard interviews with you, there are portions in his book. I mean, at one point, he describes something that went on in your trial when you yes. claimed correctly that the only people with access to that gun that hadn't been fired in 25 years were you and your mom. And then he asked you, so you're saying your mom committed the murders? And then he said that you said she may have. Well, you know, Bob McGregor was a prosecutor that would say whatever he want to say. Bob McGregor would had his way in the courtroom and everybody... Uh, got back, and I, I, to be honest with you, I would question every uh, trial that Bob McGregor did. And what kind of prosecutor would say, regardless of what the court system say, if he ever is released, I'm going to buy me a brand new 38, and I'm going to be waiting on him, and I'm going to gun him down. That's the profound hatred that he had for me because I stared him down. And I felt, to be honest with you, I felt sorry for him. He was a man that perhaps was never loved in his life. And as they would say, this was his uh, chance to show the world for 
not being the boy or the man that uh, got the girls or was not good in sports. So he went to school and became uh, a lawyer, and he became a DA, and he used his office for selfish and hateful reasons. I'm not going to give Bob McGregor the satisfaction of saying anything nice about him because there was nothing nice about him. So since your release uh, on Good Friday four years ago, has it all been sunshine and walking in the rain? Has there been any difficulties in reacclimating to a world that must have been in many ways very new to you? Uh, it has been all sunshine. Uh, I won't lie. Only when there is execution, uh, my mind goes back to the 30 years that I was there. I know exactly what the condemned is going through. I know exactly what the prison is doing the week of the execution coming up. Every guard is treating that human being like he's a human being. They're willing to go out and do whatever they can for you. These are the same people that treat you like you're dirt until you get an execution. But the moment you get an execution, all of a sudden, if you need anything, just let us know. The warden allowed visitors to come that you couldn't see before you got an execution. For that particular night, they get ready to execute you. They want to send you off, as they say, with the best meal, whatever you want to eat. Just let us know and we'll get it for you. Treat you like a human being because they finna kill you. And yes, on the week of an execution, I go through hell all over again because I'm there. Regardless of what I try to do, you know, uh, a friend of mine that I got to know on Alabama death row named Christopher Brooks, I was over in Hawaii trying to just first vacation in 30 years. And I found myself up at 1 o'clock in the morning, and my friend woke up, and he said, what's wrong? I said, I just can't enjoy because I know Alabama's getting ready to kill a man. And so my mind was there, and although my body was in Hawaii, but my mind was in Alabama thinking about Christopher Brooks. Question, are they killing an innocent man tonight? What purpose is it? What does we receive from it? How is it that we can have such a death penalty? Are we any better than the person that did this? Because we sentenced them to die because we said they killed someone. And yet we turn around and kill them. Well, who should pay for his murder? Because murder is murder regardless of who do it. And so, yes. I have good days and bad days, and I truly have bad days on execution nights. In 2019, only five people have been executed, and the state leading the country, though, in execution is Alabama. Are you putting yourself through? I mean, what you do, your activism, is based on the thing that tortures you the most. Can you continue on? I have to. I, I have to continue on for one reason. I'm hoping that someday the people will realize that we don't need a death penalty. It serves no purpose, and it costs too much. It costs over $2 million to execute a person from the time they go to trial to the time they execute it. And I want to fight for those men that and women that sits on 
throughout this country innocent, but yet haven't been able to find a lawyer to uh, dig into their case. I want to fight because I once sit on death row for 30 years, and I needed someone to fight for me. I want to continue to do it until we get the death penalty abolished, because as long as I sit and breathe, just as they made a mistake, and that's what we want to call it, then why is it that we don't think any, any other innocent people is on death row? I truly believe, after all that been done to me on purpose, I truly believe that we are a better country than having a death penalty. I truly believe that. And so, until the day that I die, until the day that the death penalty is over with, I'm going to get up as long as I can get up. I'm going to talk as long as I can talk. I'm going to stand as long as I can stand and say what we are doing morally is wrong. Anthony Ray Hinton is the author of The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life, Freedom, and Justice. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. And now the spiel. For Eric Swalwell, the work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. But not by running for president. The torch has been bypassed. The fire, not extinguished, but put on the back burner of ambition. Eric Swalwell, plucky, young congressman, who is fine in a committee hearing, who is pretty sharp on cable news, was, as it turns out, not among the top 24 choices among Democrats for the 2020 race. Or to be more accurate, the congressman, in dropping out, showed himself to be among the 20 most self-aware Democrats running for president. I don't know how aware he was. I mean, here's an analogy. In the emperor's new clothes, let's say the emperor looked down and saw he had no clothes and acknowledged it, but immediately convinced himself, okay, no clothes, but I got a rockin' bod and the people will be glad to see it. I'm gonna, what, put these ripped abs and sweet glutes behind fabric? No, sir. You're lost, people. You're lost. Today, keep that in mind as you hear this clip of Eric Swalwell bowing out. He did not endorse any of the other candidates, but when asked about an endorsement, said this. I don't know yet. Uh, I'm, I'm really impressed uh, by this field. If uh, Megan Rapahoe gets in the race, I'm probably going to endorse her. I think she turns 35 uh, next July. Weirdly, that reference to Megan Rapino, not Rapahoe, <laughs> landed with the rhetorical force of many of his greatest singers. There was no mention of a torch, the torch was the metaphor that almost caught fire, but kind of went up in flames when he tried to wield it against the man who was twice his age. Literally, Eric Swalwell was born 38 years and four days before Joe Biden. But he went there. You probably remember it. This attempt at the slick, proverbial burn during the first debate. Joe Biden was right when he said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans 32 years ago. He's still right today. If we're going to solve the issues of automation, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issues of climate chaos, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issue of student loan debt, pass the torch. If we're going to end gun violence for families who are fearful of sending their kids to school, pass the torch. Because it was Swalwell's torch that was lighting the way. You could say that, but it would be quite a stretch. So what we've done is we've put together a a farewell video, the video that they might play at the remembrance, the memorial service to the Swalwell campaign. Now, you're going to have to provide the visuals and you're going to have to provide the backing track. Think of many heroic shots of Eric Swalwell 
as he has his shirt kind of uh, unbuttoned or at least uh, rolled up on the sleeves as he shakes the hand of young constituents and we see a glimmer of hope in his eye, a glimmer of hope that we recognize in ourselves, but really don't recognize at all because most people didn't know who Eric Swalwell was. So think of a rotating carousel of Swalwell images and also think, I don't know, what song will we put under there? How about Cheap Tricks, The Flame? Because although, as Cheap Trick said, I want you to want me, and Swalwell did, they also spoke about the undying, never-to-be-snuffed-out flame, which in a way lives in all of us, but in a more accurate way does not live at all in the Swalwell 2020 candidacy. Here now, Eric Swalwell, a remembrance. I've been seeing the exact same thing, which is why I've come back here to Dublin, backed by my neighbors who have always been in my corner to declare my candidacy for President of the United States of America. You cut our time in hell in half. Thank you to Mr. Chin's hot sauce for performing. And we have a president right now that doesn't understand the dreams that you have. I will be that president. I will be bold without the bowl. Everyone thinks the dream lives in a destination. And I always say, no, no, the dream lives in the activities that you do today. I want Iowans to know I see you, I hear you, I'm for you. Pass the torch. Well, I'm running to be president. I see a pathway to being president and I'll serve our country any way that it's needed, including, of course, uh, being vice president. So maybe the flame does not die out after all. It just transmogrifies to a vice presidential light under a bushel who's better at fundraising and exciting the base. But it is good to remember the words, deeds, and message of Eric Swalwell. And also mixed in there was self-help guru Brendan Burchard, who posted a video called How to Have Patience Pursuing Your Dream. Indeed. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader. It's all right. It's produced by Pierre Bienname. He's all right. They just seem a little weird. Don't give yourself away, T.J. Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, and you can catch her live at Budokan. And today on What Next, Slate's early morning news podcast, the Wilkinson County Correctional Facility seems unbelievably dysfunctional. They basically can't run the prison without the say-so of the gangs that control it. Mary Harris talks to Marshall Project reporters who covered that story on What Next in your feeds right now. The gist we live inside your head. The gist, we come to you in bed. Umpur Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.